So I'm going to start with a question this morning. I want you to think about your life, the way you think about yourself, the way you treat other people, the way you think about God treating you. And I want to ask you, do you live your life based more on a paradigm of judgment or more on a paradigm of mercy? Let me define my terms a little bit. Judgment means you get what you deserve. If you make a mistake, you pay the penalty. If you break the law, you pay the consequence. There's no second chances. It's cut and dry. There's a, there's a weightiness to judgment. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Let me give you an example. When I was 16, I set my house on fire, killed my cat, and almost killed my dad. Uh, our home was ruined for a good long time. It was totally my fault. The night of the fire, I took a sauna. Don't get any wild ideas about extravagance. This was a little sauna my dad built in the back of my mom's laundry room. And uh, when I went to turn the sauna off, I turned the knob to high rather than off, and we all climbed into bed, and the house burst into flames. When we went back the next morning to look at the damage and to try to figure out what had happened, I saw the knob uh, the dial for the sauna turned to high and then burned into place. And it dawned on me what I had done and what almost had happened. And in that moment, my dad turned to me and said, oh, honey, it's not your fault. It's my fault. I didn't wire the sauna correctly, and that's why it caught fire. That is mercy. See, because I deserved judgment. I caused so much damage with my carelessness. And I could easily have been shown judgment by my father. I mean, he almost died. He was kind of happy I killed the cat, though. <laughs> so maybe that's why he showed me mercy. But anyway, he, he showed me mercy. I was not treated as I deserved. And the weight that lifted off my young shoulders was profound. I will never forget that moment. So now let me ask you, do you live your life based on a paradigm of mercy or on a paradigm of judgment? As Doug said, we're in this series where we're studying a letter. That's really what the, many of the books of the Bible are. This is a letter penned by the brother of Jesus. So this is a man James, who grew up next to Jesus. He played with him. He ate with him. I mean, think about this. So great that we have access to the letter written to the early church by the brother of Jesus. But let me give you a warning. James does not mess around. If you've been reading along in the daily scriptures with us, you know what I'm talking about. James is a little like uh, the little brother who likes to walk up to you and punch you right in the stomach when you're brushing your teeth. You know, that kind of little brother? Faith works, James says. Faith works. Or it is not faith at all. Faith works itself out into the way we live, into the way we treat other human beings. Or it's not faith at all. It's something completely else. That's James, our little gut puncher. 
So we're going to look at the start of the second chapter of the book of James this morning. If you've been here these last two weeks in this room, you've heard both Dave and Brian teach our way through the first chapter. But before I dig into the text I want to look at today, I just want to remind you that we as followers of Jesus must always, always, always start before we read the scriptures and remind ourselves that we live in faith by the grace of Jesus. There is nothing we do to earn God's love. Anything that we're called to do out of scripture is only as an outflow of the trust and faith we already have in the grace of Jesus for us. So we cannot start to look at the book of James without grounding ourselves in this fact or it will become just another you need to try harder to be a better person situation, which, as I can attest to, and I know all of you can attest to, doesn't work. Okay? So let's start with grace and then dig in. Let's look at what James writes in James chapter 2, starting with verse 1. My brothers and sisters, he says, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but instead say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So remember, James is writing to the earliest church, and he starts this particular bit of his letter by asking them about this idea of favoritism. The the Greek word, the, the, the word in the original text for favoritism, literally meant to the face, to the face. And so he's talking about this idea of judging other human beings based on what you can see, their externals. And so something, he goes on to give an example, one example of how this looked in the early church around discrimination. The rich were being given preferential seating arrangements at their gatherings. And what's fascinating to me is that this was a poor church. Most of the Christians were not wealthy, well-off people. They were poor. And yet they were showing favoritism toward the rich. They were enamored with the wealthy. How primitive of them. How far we've come as a society, as a church. And so James is saying to them, how on earth do you, followers of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, how on earth do you think it is okay to make judgments about human beings based on what they look like? Based on how they dress? based on how many rings they have on, about about how wealthy they are. How on earth does treating other human beings to the face with favoritism have anything to do with the grace and mercy of Jesus? Isn't it painful? Isn't it painful to think how true this still is of us some 2,000 years later, the church? James is addressing our need to constantly rate and rank other people who are around us. And I was thinking about that, this idea of rating and ranking other human beings. Isn't it fascinating that we get to be in charge of our own ranking system? 
And that humorously, incredibly surprisingly, when we rate and rank other human beings, we always end up on top. It's incredible. We're always the superior ones. It's incredible to me. We're in, they're out. We are good. They are bad. Right? We are right and they are wrong. God loves us. God hates them. And in the newly formed community of Jesus, James tells us, he told them, and this is still true for the community of Jesus today, there is no room for this favoritism or discrimination of any kind. Now, in the world around us, in the news that we watch and read, it's going to be rampant. But the church is to be an alternative community. The church, filled with followers of Jesus, is to be distinctive from the world. This is one of the most profound ways that we are to stand out from the world around us. No discrimination of any kind. No favoritism of any kind in the church. Clear as a bell. And a bit of a gut punch. So how might this apply in our context? I was thinking about that as I was reading this, because that's what we're to do. Look at what it meant in the original letter, and then think about how could it apply in our context today. Well, we still discriminate, don't we, against the rich in their favor versus the poor. In our country, and, and dare I say it even in the church, we're, we're, we're divided by race. And very often... White folk think of themselves as superior to people with black or brown skin. Those of us born in the United States, what a privilege. Often look down on and think we are better human beings than people born in Mexico or Pakistan. Those of us who are neighbors with perfect dogs often look down on neighbors whose dogs bark incessantly there, there are people who think Olympic ice dancing is a sport and people who wonder what on earth it is they're watching on television. And, you know, I end with a little bit of a joke here to lighten the mood, but you get how serious this is, right? James is saying, when we as followers of Jesus use differences between human beings as a way we think we can measure their worth, we are demonstrating by the way we live that we do not understand the glorious Lord Jesus Christ we claim to follow. Discrimination is a sin of the highest order. And you guys, I love it when I get assigned a piece of scripture that comforts. I love to teach that. But sometimes scripture convicts, and it's very important to us to let it do its good work in us. So faith works, James says, or it is not faith at all. That's James' light little opening to his his argument here in the second chapter. Let's continue and see what else he has to say. Brace your stomach here. Here he goes. He says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. 
Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? This was happening to them all the time in the early church. The wealthy, the Romans, were oppressing this young little church. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Now, this little section can be kind of confusing. <clears throat> what James is not saying is that all poor people are rich in faith and that all rich people are schmucks and faithless. But he is commenting on the tendency of those who are materially poor, who have great need in this world, to be drawn to the gospel. And those who are materially well off to feel as if they don't need what Jesus has to offer. We see this all around us today, don't we? And I see this in my own heart. When I'm feeling spiritually well off, Jesus feels just like a little frosting on the chocolate layer cake of my life. You know, like, hey God, thanks for this all. I'll be in touch if I need you. But when things are dark, when I'm feeling spiritually poor, like one of my kids is traveling overseas or... My mom is in the hospital, which is where she is this morning. I'm desperate for Jesus. I'm desperate for God. He becomes my everything, you know? And if God's heart has a lean, James says, God's heart bends, it arcs toward the poor. Because he understands and sees how the poor are mistreated, taken advantage of, and often exploited by the rich. So why on earth, James says to these new believers, why would you show favoritism toward the rich and not toward the poor? Faith works, James says, or it is not faith at all. And now he's building his case. Listen to what he writes next. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, and then he tells us what the royal law is, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, right? If you judge people by their externals, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Pretty clear. When we engage in favoritism, remember, thinking maybe men are more important than women or white people are better than people of color or Americans are maybe a tad closer to God than, say, Syrians. When we do this kind of mental judgment in our head, we sin. And we are breaking one of God's laws, what James calls the royal law or the ultimate law, what Jesus elevated as one of the highest, greatest commandments. And I think people must have been trying to argue against James in the early church that discrimination against poor people or against anyone else based on external factors wasn't really that big of a sin. You can almost hear what James is pushing back on. I mean, I sometimes try to argue like this with God, right? Like, come on, God. I go to church. I'm a good Christian. I do all the right things. It's just human nature to to discriminate based on skin color or ethnicity. Everybody does it. I mean, I don't murder. 
I don't commit adultery. I'm pretty good compared to that guy. You know what that's called? That's called self-justification. And I do it all the time, and so do you. We try to explain in our own mind why I'm a pretty good person in comparison to them. And it takes up so much of my energy and time. And when I do it, God smiles because he's kind and he pats me on the head. And sometimes he calls me little missy. Like, okay, all right, little missy. And then he crushes my argument. And tells me how I deceive myself, which is what James does here with these folks. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law, you keep the entire law and breaks and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. And so if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. I call this the break one, break them all argument of James. He's, he's letting the early church know afresh that we are all lawbreakers. All of us. We will all be judged by the law and found wanting. Rich and poor, black and white, Male and female, churchgoer and non-churchgoer, we are flat-out lawbreakers. There is no come-on-man loophole here. And James wants us to know this. He was making this compelling argument to the early church for one reason. He wanted them to understand how desperately every single one of them was in need of God's mercy. I love how Brennan Manning puts it when he said, the good news of the gospel of grace cries out. We are all equally privileged but unentitled beggars at the door of God's mercy. You see, the ground is flat at the foot of the cross. And it's really hard to discriminate when we all realize that we're all just beggars. James isn't done. So now he's telling them what he wants them to do. He said, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. What on earth does that mean? How can a law give freedom? James says, remember the ultimate law, the royal law, the one law I've asked you to live by and that my brother asked you to live by, right? Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. And how does this law give you liberty? It frees you from the incessant, selfish need to live for yourself, which is the ultimate form of slavery. Instead, it frees you to give yourself away for other people. That's where liberty is. And then he goes for the knockout punch. 
verse 13. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Dude. That statement should make us stop in our tracks. It should make us kind of hold our breath a little bit. It should make us make this face. Because it seems to me mic-droppingly clear that what James is saying, James, who grew up next to Jesus, what he's saying is that the level of mercy I show other human beings will be the same level of mercy I will be shown when I meet my creator. I was studying this. I woke up one morning early before the alarm, and I just turned to Chuck and I said, we need to really step up our level of mercy showing, okay, Chuck? Like, we got to get our game on here. And you think I'm joking, but you know this is true. We love judgment for other people. But then we beg for it for ourselves. Am I right? Like when I judge the homeless guy. Oh, I'm not going to give him any money because he might go buy alcohol with it. But when I have a hard day, I would love just a nice little glass of Merlot by the fire. Or when I judged a teenage mom I was mentoring because she bought brand name yogurt with her food stamps and I have zero problem going to sidecar for a $6 cold press any day of the week. Or when I withhold mercy from somebody who hurts me, ooh, I can be the ice queen. But I expect God to give me mercy when I break his heart on a daily basis. Faith works, James says. It works itself out in the amount of mercy we give away, or it is not faith at all. So we are all lawbreakers, every single one of us. But through Jesus and because of Jesus, you and I receive mercy upon mercy upon mercy instead of judgment. We do not get what we deserve. We get better. And so why on earth would we believe then that we can accept the mercy of God toward us, self-justifying little lawbreakers that we all are, and then refuse to offer it to others? We're like little mercy hoarders. And when we do this, James says, we are in a very dangerous predicament. But then James ends with this memorable one-liner. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And the word triumph here is really important. It means to gloat, to celebrate, to declare superiority. Quick quick story to give an example of what triumph looks like. Uh, once a year, I play in my husband's company's golf tournament. Uh, if you know me at all, you know I've tried to play golf, but I stop because it makes me swear. I just think it's the best thing for me, for the world, for me to stop. But once a year, I play in my husband's golf tournament. We play at Walters Ridge, par three, okay? So we play four-person best shot, two men, two women on a team, we, so we play whoever hits the farthest or the best ball, we play their ball. So first hole, I don't know how it went. Second hole, one of the guys hits almost onto the green. So maybe he's 10, 
10 feet or so off the green. So we approach the shot, and the guys are like, Alice, you go first, which, as, as everybody knows, means you screw it up, and then we'll fix it. So I get up to the ball, and uh, the guys are like, the two guys are like, you really need to, you need to putt it. Anyone who knows anything would putt it from here. One guy's down on the ground, like, lining it up for me. I'm just like, you know, I'm going to chip it. And they're like, oh, I wouldn't chip it. I would really putt it. I, I get up, take my pitching wedge, sink it. Pick up my club, turn to the men, drop the club, walk away. That's what the word triumph means here, okay? <laughs> Mercy gloats over judgment. Mercy declares its superiority over judgment. Now, how does that work? How does mercy triumph over judgment? Right? What a weird thing to say, James. But think about this. Judgment. Well, think about back to my fire story. Judgment can break us. Judgment can punish us. Judgment can make us feel guilty. Judgment can do its best to scare us straight. But judgment can never turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Only mercy can break a human heart open in gratitude and surrender. Which is why Jesus gave mercy away like it was his job. And to almost every human being he offered it to, they followed him. They gave him their life. And so when we know we deserve judgment, but instead we're shown mercy by Jesus, like my dad showed me when I almost killed him, we start to take that same kind of mercy we've been shown and we give it away like it is our job. That is how mercy triumphs over judgment. So in closing, let me just do what what both Dave and Brian have done, what we're going to do every week with this series. What does James want us to know? He wants us to know that discrimination of any kind breaks the royal law, the ultimate law. We're all beggars at the door of God's mercy. And this should influence how we give mercy away. What does James want us to do? We need to stop discriminating, my friends. James would say to us, if you're listening or watching or reading things that cause you to hate other people groups or discriminate in any way, I think he would punch us in the stomach and tell us to turn it off. James wants us to live the royal law. It's the road to freedom. And he wants us to practice letting mercy triumph over judgment in our daily life. So a couple next steps I'll suggest. One is that you read this great new book called White Awake. If you struggle with discrimination of any kind, this is a book that should open your eyes. It's one of our six-week small groups, an online discussion. I'm sure you can ask about it at the Welcome Center or the information booth. And then I want you to think of one relationship in your life where you are tempted to withhold mercy. And instead, could you practice letting Mercy triumph over judgment and see what happens. The band is going to sing a beautiful song now about mercy. And I pray that you would just let the words wash over you and let God speak to you about how his mercy should epitomize every cell of your being and how much he loves you and wants you to give mercy away.
beautiful song. Help us, Father, to understand that we are all just beggars at the door of God's mercy. And that Jesus blows open that door and says, Come in, come in, all you self-justifying lawbreakers. And I will give you what you do not deserve, which is grace upon grace upon grace. And then I ask you this one thing, my followers. Would you go back out into this world, not as judges, not as discriminators, not as people who show favoritism, not as people who think they are superior. But would you give mercy away like it is your job? Help us, Father. Help us to know when and how and where and why to give mercy away. We pray all this in Jesus' good and powerful and merciful name. Amen.